Well, this morning we come to the end of the road in the book of Acts. This is a journey that we started almost a year ago, and it's hard to believe that we're here. I look back over the past two years here at Oaks Parish, and two years ago we walked through the book of Romans. This past year we walked through the book of Acts, and this has been incredibly life-giving. We come to the end of Acts in Acts 28, and it has this odd ambiguous and open ending and ended ending to it and it just kind of begs the question for us as the church where do we go from here I think this brings us back to where we started why did we journey through the book of Acts over the past year well as we've cited throughout there's all sorts of data floating around about church attendance and how church attendance has changed, either increased or declined across generations. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal just earlier this month uh, about church attendance for those of us in midlife. And I found this piece particularly fascinating for our purposes. It says, Americans in their 40s and 50s often identify with a religion, but they're also in the thick of raising kids, caring for aging parents, and juggling demanding jobs that spill into the weekend. During the pandemic, many got out of the habit of going regularly to religious services and didn't resume. Some had been drifting away before and became disillusioned by church scandals or positions on social issues in recent years. I think that's pretty, pretty poignant, pretty much sums up how we've been evaluating kind of the state of the church post-pandemic, at least here in America. We've been talking about a threefold reality for the church coming out of the pandemic. That we felt depleted, we were tired, exhausted, we were disconnected socially from one another. And some of us were deconstructing in our faith, asking significant questions about faith in the church. We find out at the end of the Gospels, the beginning of Acts, that the disciples felt that same way after the cross and the resurrection. They were weary. They had journeyed for three years with Jesus, believing that Jesus was truly ushering in the kingdom of God. And he was, but in a way that they didn't quite imagine because it ultimately culminated in the cross of Christ. And then they were deflated and dejected. And then three days later, Jesus appears in his resurrected form. But then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven and leaves them (laughs) and commissions them to be the church. It's been a roller coaster ride. The disciples are weary. They were disconnected. After the cross, they were hiding out in homes in Jerusalem. And certainly, at least some of them were deconstructing in faith. We see this in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus gives the Great Commission. The text says that they, the disciples, worshiped him, but some doubted. That even in Jesus' resurrected body, some doubted. It's true for the disciples. It's true for us. And yet, by the end of Acts, we see that the church, this community of Jesus, had moved from Jerusalem into the various nooks and crannies of the Mediterranean region and even to the halls of power in the Roman Empire. The disciples dedicated their life to the church to the mission of Jesus. Some of them even gave their lives to this cause. And more and more people came to faith. But as we conclude here this morning, it begs the question for our own relationship with God in the church. 
Why should we make a commitment to be here? To be part of this? To do the hard work of getting our kids out the door on Sunday morning? To wake up an extra morning of the week? To be here rather than on Mount Hood or at brunch at Broder? Why do we volunteer? Why do we give freely of our tithes and offerings? Why should we join a discipleship group? Well, I believe that Acts 28 gives us the final answer. Last week, Paul boarded a ship sailing to Rome, only to be broken apart in a storm. Paul and all of the people on the ship were swimming and floating on planks and pieces of the ship, and they wash ashore the island of Malta series on this particular passage, but let me give you the summary of verse 1 through 11 of Acts 28. The people of Malta show Paul and the crew extraordinary hospitality. It begins with them building this fire to warm them up in the cold and the wet environment. And all of a sudden they're picking up these pieces of wood and Paul is bitten by a snake. And all of the islanders think, wow, justice is surely being had here with this man, Paul. Surely he did something wrong and he's now going to die, but Paul doesn't. And Paul even goes on to heal the town mayor's father. There's all sorts of rich allusions here on Malta, starting with the sea. Throughout ancient literature, the sea was portrayed as this chaotic, destructive, primordial force. And yet in Genesis chapter 1, the story of God is so astonishing because it portrays a God who's above it all. He's transcendent. He's in control of the forces of the sea. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the snake is portrayed as humanity's mortal enemy. And yet this snake does not overcome Paul. And then we see this Alexandrian ship. It has a carving of twin brothers on the bow. These were the mythological brothers, Castor and Pollux, guardians of sailors and innocent travelers, as well as guardians of truth and punishers of those who committed perjury. So you put all of these rich images together, and it forms a picture. The sea and the snake have done their worst, and yet they're overcome by the power of God. The very bow of Paul's ship testifies that God is carrying Paul along to safety. Three months later, they set sail for the closest port to Rome. They stay with Christians in this town called Petulia, 130 miles from Rome. This must have been really interesting. Paul was basically shackled or imprisoned uh, with these guards, and these guards were, these Roman guards were being welcomed into the home of Christians in these cities that were surrounding Rome. And then all of a sudden, believers from Rome hear about Paul's arrival, and they come streaming out of the city to welcome Paul to the city of Rome. And you might be asking, how did they know Paul? I mean, Paul had never visited Rome before this time. Well, this takes us back to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And they are Jews from Rome, beginning at Pentecost, which is described in Acts chapter 2. And after Pentecost, these Jews who were beginning to follow Jesus, they returned to Rome. And then for reasons unknown, there was unrest in the city, particularly amongst Jews, maybe against Christians. And in 49 AD, the emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews and all of the Jewish Christians out of the city of Rome. 
And Paul begins to encounter these outcast people along his missionary journeys that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Priscilla and Aquila, that couple, would be an example of Roman Christians that Paul met along the way. Well, in 54 AD, a new Caesar came to power, familiar to all of us, named Nero. And he withdrew this Jewish ban in Rome. And slowly, Jews and Jewish Christians began to trickle back into the city. Now, they had been gone for a period of six years. The church in Rome had continued to grow. And it started out as this very Jewish-feeling thing. But over a six-year period, it became a very Gentile type into the city, coming back into the church. And all of a sudden, there was a great deal of racial and cultural strife in the church in Rome. And this was the occasion for Paul's letter that we have in our Bible called the Book of Romans, which Paul wrote along the way in Acts while under house arrest for two years in Caesarea, back in Acts chapter 24. At the end of Romans, Paul expresses great anticipation for one day visiting the church in Rome. And now it's 60 A.D., And Paul has finally made it. Not in the way he thought. (laughs) He thought he was going to be coming there for this just wonderful communal visit. He's coming now in chains. Scholar Willie James Jennings says that in the place where his future would be decided, Paul discovered a truth we all must remember. God is everywhere waiting for us to arrive. I love that. God is everywhere, waiting for us to arrive. So upon arriving in Rome, Paul proceeds to meet with the Jewish leader. He's keenly aware of this axis of power that exists between Rome and Jerusalem. He's curious, what do these Jewish leaders know about me? What do they know about my case? In addition, he wants to avoid further conflicts with the Jews in Rome. He knows that's not going to do him any favors in the court of Caesar. So he sets up a meeting to see what they know, and he discovers, surprisingly, they know nothing. They've never heard of Paul. They've never heard about his case. They've never received any letters from the temple in Jerusalem. They're not well informed about Christianity or the gospel, but the little they've heard, it's, it's not been great, but they're open to hearing more. So Paul continues to meet with them, ultimately quoting the prophet Isaiah. You will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. But if they would look, understand with their heart in turn, Yahweh would heal them. At first glance, this might appear to be kind of a prophetic threat of Paul against these Jewish leaders in Rome. But I think it's more so an invitation. An invitation into the continuing story of Israel now found in Christ. And then here's how the whole story of Acts ends in verse 28 through 31. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense And welcome all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's it. That's the book of Acts. What kind of ending 
is that? I mean, we're sitting here wondering, like, is there going to be a season two? You know, what exactly happened with Paul? What happened with the church? Beginning with Paul, tradition holds that Paul was ultimately released from house arrest. His case probably dismissed by the court of Caesar due to a lack of evidence. He continued his ministry around the Mediterranean, maybe even reaching Spain, which was his ambition. But about five years later, a great fire broke out in Rome. The emperor Nero Nero changed his tune. He blamed Christians for the fire and proceeded to put them to death. And it's possible that Paul died in this. But why did Luke end the story of Acts this way? There's several theories about that. One of which says that, well, maybe the, the story of Acts, the story of the church caught up with the events themselves in Luke's life. But multiple references throughout Acts support the fact that Luke wrote Acts sometimes well after all of these events happened. Some scholars propose that maybe Luke died and he just didn't get to finish the story. But again, various references throughout lead us to believe that some years had passed uh, since, uh, since all this had taken place and Luke was recording the story. Another theory says that maybe Luke did have in mind a season two a third volume that he never got around to or he died before he composed it. But most scholars who espouse this theory do so simply because in our Western minds, the story leaves us hanging. Well, to find the true answer, or perhaps the true answer, let us recall what Acts is all about. We'll go back to the thesis statement. Acts chapter 1, verse 7 through 8. Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times of the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying there that when we look to him, we receive a power. And what the power is all about is that we're looking to Jesus alone. We find ourselves in union with with God himself. We enjoy his presence, his abiding presence in our life now and for all eternity. Jesus becomes our foundational justification. And that has power because so much of our lives we spend believing that failure is not an option. Think about that. Think about how many times in our performance culture that that message went through your mind this week. Failure is not an option. In your job, in your parenting, trying to figure out your calling, in your marriage, you hear this message over and over again. But it's always an option. Because the story of the Bible tells us that in our rebellion against God, we now live in this broken, fallen, sinful world. We come face to face with failure each and every week. Failure is not an option for only one person, and that's Jesus. And that's why there is power in looking to him. The power comes from his sacrifice on the cross where he died for all of the wrongs that we commit against God and for one another. He's paid the debt, and the power comes in his righteousness 
that he takes away our unrighteous record. He gives us his righteous record as we look to him in faith. And as we stand in Christ, all of our wrongs done away with, all the righteousness of Christ ours, we stand before God complete. The only judgment that ultimately matters. And in Jesus, we stand before him complete. This power comes to us when we look to him instead of ourselves. And what the church is all about, it's this new society where we live together with our hearts finally at rest. As I noted at the beginning of the liturgy, we are a people of rest. That's the life available in Jesus. The book of Acts coincidentally tells us that the gospel justifies not only each one of us, but the gospel also justifies the church. And I think that's really powerful for us here in America. And we've seen this in Acts in three different ways. The story of the church first isn't justified by a personality. The story of the church isn't justified by a personality. You might remember that the first part of Acts, it follows Peter, who was the great apostle, who preached this great sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then it just kind of trails off with Peter, and we begin to follow Paul. And then we find out that even in the Corinthian church, that that church had kind of moved past Paul, and they were on to this other guy named Apollos, who they thought was maybe a better, a better teacher than even Paul himself, if you can imagine that. But the story of the church isn't justified by a personality. And I've lived in this town long enough to observe that even here in Portland, that the designation of celebrity pastor has moved from person to person and from church to church because we really love that kind of thing here in America. We love individualism. We love success. We want to be tethered to the right kind of person. But Acts tells us that the church isn't justified by a personality. And maybe this is part of our collective repentance in this day and age, in the era of our own life, that we have hitched our wagon to a personality rather than Jesus. The story of Acts doesn't tell us what happened to Paul because this isn't Paul's story. This is the story of a resurrection community in Jesus. Secondly, the story of the church isn't justified by empire. As powerful as the Roman Empire was then and even still is today, the church isn't justified by that empire. And I want us to pay close attention to this one, especially as we enter in to yet another election cycle. If Acts shows us anything about political power, it's that power is, political power is inept. It corrupts. Every royal figure that we met along the way in the story of Acts is simply trying desperately to hold on to something elusive, power. And as a result, whether it's Ananias, the high priest in the temple, or these governors, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, all of these royal acts become a tragic comedy. At every turn and corner, their efforts to destroy or exploit the faith are thwarted and even made foolish. 
Looming always in the background of Acts is this question. Does our loyalty lie with Caesar or Jesus? Who will be Lord? As I mentioned a moment ago, Paul was likely executed by order of Nero around 65 AD. But just three years later, Nero's leadership came to an end with his own suicide. Political power is ever-changing. It's fleeting. It's an illusion. Yes, it can be a blessing, but it's an axe sends a clear message to the first century as well as us today. The church has no need of a Caesar. Third, the story of the church isn't justified by circumstance. You know, Acts has a great beauty to it. To it. it reflects the reality of our life. You know, in the story of Acts, some people were healed and some people died. Some of the teaching bore great fruit. Some of the apostles were in prison. We find that sometimes the church had money. Sometimes people didn't. Sometimes people responded and listened to the gospel and took it into their heart. And sometimes they walked away. The story of Acts, though, ultimately testifies that nothing can stop the gospel because it's the power of God. The victory of Christ is within history. That victory stands complete. In the words of Jesus, it is finished. There's no going back. There's nothing else to do. There's no ambiguity. There's no other possibility. Our spiritual union with Christ guarantees that the power of God can and will transform our life. And that's why it was anchored cross and resurrection in a moment in history. And so it's inside the hardship of Acts under house arrest in Caesarea that Paul wrote those now famous words in his letter to the church and conquerors through him who loves us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. This power, this union, it is unstoppable. And it's irrespective if things are going bad or good in your life right now. So by the end of Acts, we come to this conclusion. The story of the church is not about personality. It's not anchored in empire. It doesn't rise and fall on circumstance. And this is why we're told in the very last verse of Acts that Paul was declaring the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance because it would echo through the ages unfettered. So then the ultimate question becomes, how does this affect our relationship with the church? And to answer that question, I want to look back to church history to the story of Teresa of Avila, with Teresa of Avila. She was a Carmelite nun and Spanish mystic who lived at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. She grew up in a wealthy Catholic family, and as a little girl, she was fascinated by tales of knighthood and the stories of Christian saints. And at age seven, she got so excited that she ran away from home to go and fight against the Moors, Fortunately, she was captured by her uncle just outside the city walls. But by age 20, she joined this local Carmelite convent, the convent of the Incarnation. 
And she began to have these profound mystical encounters with God, these, these very real personal encounters in her heart, while at the same time reading St. Augustine's Confessions. So it was experiential, but also theological. And throughout this period, she actually came to arrive at some of the same theological conclusions as Martin Luther. She began to identify a number of problems at the convent. It didn't seem like the sisters were taking their vows very seriously. The community seemed to lack purpose. The environment there at the convent was constantly disrupted by social, socialites and politicians. So she sought approval for a reformed Carmelite order governed by a constitution that called for abject poverty, a return to strict order, and discalcitation, that is, going without shoes. She planted various convents in this new order, two of which were for men who wanted to adopt these reforms. That's how she began to befriend and mentor John. In 1576, in connection with the Inquisition, she began to face opposition and persecution within, from Carmelite members who weren't fans of her reform. And they forced her into a quiet retirement. And it wasn't until several years later that all the charges would be dropped. And yet amidst all of that, where she was giving her life for the church, but the church was doing all of these corrupt and disdainful things, she writes this in Interior Council. She says, By God's goodness I am and always shall be faithful to the church as I have been in the past. May he be forever blessed and glorified. Amen. It's right there even in those very words, but also in the larger story of Teresa. She shows us why the gospel is not just good news for us as individuals, but the gospel is good news for the institution of the church. Teresa had a clear-eyed vision for the sin, brokenness, and error of the church. But as she deconstructed her faith, she didn't abandon the church, nor did she abandon orthodoxy. Instead, she doubled down. She invested more deeply. She sought the holiness of God. She saw clearly that Christ alone was not just the only hope for her life, but also for the church. And so she was living out Ephesians chapter 4, which tells us that Christ loved the church and gave him because the church needed cleansing. Because Jesus wanted to behold the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that the church would be made holy and without blemish. And when we look to Jesus like Teresa did, we join Christ in that same love for the church. The justification of Christ alone, it enables us to be honest about that which is broken in the church and to lovingly give up our lives for her beauty. I want us to know, despite how we think about individualism here in America, the story of Acts tells us that in Jesus, we are the church. This isn't just institutionalism. We are the church. We are the body of Christ who is being made beautiful in him and by him. And how we renew our imagination for the church is simply to go back to the gospel that Jesus died not just for us as individuals, but for the church. 
The Holy Spirit not only raised Jesus from the dead and indwells in our heart, but the Holy Spirit is bringing renewal and beauty into the church. That's where the power is found. And so the church isn't an institution that rises and falls on the world's justification. The church is a new humanity, a new civilization of people living with their hearts at rest. And that liberation comes from confidence in Christ rather than anything else. It's why Paul declares the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. On Tuesday, I boarded a plane to take our oldest daughter, Ellie, uh, to school at American University in Washington, D.C. And I just want you to know, Ellie's our firstborn. Uh, She was our daughter that on the first day of kindergarten, she ran to school. And it was like I was boarding a plane with that same little girl. (laughs) She was so excited. She was so ready for this. And on our move-in day, which was Wednesday, Wednesday morning, we woke up. We went and ran errands. uh, We went and walked around the White House. And then we got in the car to go to her move-in time at school. And as I sat down in the car, I said, okay, um, we're going to be really busy later on during move-in. Let's just go ahead and get our emotional conversation out of the way. I don't know if you're like that. You just like to schedule your emotions. Anybody, anybody like me? Yes. This got it all out in the drive to American University. And so we get there, and sure enough, we're very busy. Um, I get everything moved in, all the stuff unboxed. The other roommate's family left, and I'm just standing there, dad. I could just kind of tell it was, it was time. It was that moment. Ellie and her roommate were all settled in, and I knew it was time for dad to go and for my daughter to begin a new chapter. And later that evening, in contemplation, I walked from the Capitol to the Washington Monument. And my heart welled up in pride uh, for my little girl who's now out in the world. And my heart was filled with gratitude unto God. I'm also an achiever. And so I was like, yes, we did it. We raised a human being. (laughs) We did this. I know there's a lot more, but we did this. This is initial beachhead here. And that's really the point you want to get to as a parent, right? You know, you made this huge 18-year investment. And at the end of it all, you just want your children to be in a place where they can move out into the world and flourish. I think that's why Acts ends the way it does. Because we have a heavenly Father. He's done everything necessary that we might move out and flourish in the world. And his heart, in a holy way, wells up with pride, he's empowered us to be the church. He's single-handedly rescued humanity. There's nothing else left for us as human beings to do to find love, meaning, and purpose, and fulfillment. He's done it all. We've been made ready. And so we get to the end of Acts, and it's time. This end is our beginning. Will you pray for us? Heavenly Father, let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your help, 
protect and govern it always by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.